there's no doubt that the old politics of the two-party system is now gone and over. I don't need lectures from you or anybody on, on the Sinn Féin side of the house. We're very reluctant to kind of say what's red lines, but, but we do have to take climate seriously. There's going to be constant criticism, there's going to be a lot of disappointment, and whoever goes into government is going to be unpopular. Okay. Hello and you're very welcome to Your Politics Podcast from RTE News. I'm Paul Cunningham. Joining me today in studio is RTE's political correspondent, Michal Lahan, our political reporter, Sandra Hurley, and our political guest, that's a lot of politicals, our political guest is the Cahirlach of the Shannon, Mark Daly. Mark, you're welcome to Your Politics Podcast. Thanks for having me on. You're here for a reason. Um, the Shannad is doing something. What is the Shannad doing? We launched uh, the 100th anniversary programme of Shannad Aaron and uh, we had our two guests, former Senator and former President Mary Robinson. And Not available to this podcast. <laughs> Not available to this <laughs> yes. podcast, no. But uh, I'm sure at some stage there'll be, they'll, they'll be a, a guest appearance uh, by not only uh, former President and former Senator, Mary Robinson, but also uh, Senator David Norris, who was our other great guest, the longest continuous serving senator in the history of the state. And I suppose when we were framing the the idea and the concept of celebrating 100 years of, of the Shannon, it was looking back at its origins. And its origins 100 years ago was to make sure that the minority community who found themselves now on the southern side of the border would have a voice and a place in the new state. And that was the unionist community. So it was probably the most diverse bunch of politicians we've ever had. Uh, of the 60 senators, 20 were uh, Protestant. We had three Quakers and one of Jewish faith, uh, and Ellen Cuff, who was born in England in a in a workhouse. And when we say Protestant, does that necessarily mean Protestant equates with unionist? No, because WB Yeats would have been one of those. So it's not. It's kind of like it's kind of like no. Just there's no equal sign next to the, the to any word, but it's just a case of that they were it, they were aware in the new state, Arthur Griffith, Michael Collins, that they needed to make sure that that voice was heard, and they were given a disproportionate amount of seats relative to their size or strength in any election, and that's of course where the uniqueness, uh, with all its flaws, of the Shannon election system. It, uh, has the, its origins. But that, of course, evolved over time from giving a voice to the unionist community in the new state to other minorities and other communities. And the father of the, the House, Senator Norris, is the embodiment, of course, of that minority voice, when often he was the sole voice and the only person. But uh, he was joined then uh, in in the Shannon as well by uh, former President Mary Robinson, who again had served for 20 years. People yeah. forget she served 20 years in Shannon. And like when you read of her track record, an extraordinary achievement that when she started out, uh, only three women had served in a jury in 10 years. Three women. And she managed through advocating the Shannon, but also through her, her legal ability uh, to change that. And often the Shannon is used as a platform for opposition senators and minority uh, senators who are representing minority ideas um, to use that as a platform to create change. And David Norris, of course, the first... But how much change did they create? Um, you know, one could argue that whether it's David Norris or whether it was Mary Robinson, both of them through legal routes brought about change, whether it was either domestic law or by calling into European law to get sort of Ireland to put its house in order, rather than necessarily what they were doing in the Shannon. Where do you, how do you strike the balance yeah, there? Yeah, I mean, and often, and this is the, the irony of politics in Ireland, whether you're an opposition TD or an opposition senator, it is extremely difficult to get legislation passed. Uh, of Since the foundation of the state and the enactment of the constitution, only six opposition senators have managed to get legislation passed. That's, that's how difficult it is. And government TDs know the same. 
they know it's very difficult as a backbench government TD that how to get legislation through the system. But oftentimes you can use circuitous routes by raising it in the Shannon and then by it being in the papers, by RT reporting on it and by, you know, yeah. Mary Robinson not being able to even get her bill read in relation to family planning. That is brought to public awareness by the, the fourth estate reporting on it, people being aware of the problem. You know, and then going from there, it's it goes through court systems. It may fail in the court systems, as David Norris did, but he continued to wear down the system. And his presence in the Shannon was was a, a very, I suppose, the very personification of the struggle. When she, when David Norris talks about his time in the Shannon, and you know, we it never came up in the last couple of years. Our last pandemic was the AIDS crisis, but society didn't want to know about it. The politicians didn't want to know about it because it, uh, there was a group of individuals who were dying, Irish citizens who were dying quietly and without the care of the state, without the resources of the state being put towards it in the way it should have been. And David Norris was one of those voices who was able to stand up in the Shannon and talk about a community that was being forgotten and was dying quietly and the society was ignoring. Yeah. And therefore, that's not a legislative change. There's no legislation you can bring in that that you could uh, you could change that. It's government policy that you change by highlighting the fact that the state was failing its own citizens. And that was the strength of David Norris. And that's always been the strength of the Shannon. W.B. Yeats famously talking about the divorce element that was brought in. And again, many people wouldn't be aware that divorce was legal in Ireland in 1922 and it was only when the constitution was enacted it became illegal. And W.B. Yeats talked about the idea we are no petty people when he said, can you not understand where the union, the Protestant community are coming from here that this is against our beliefs in terms of uh, what, what our community can do and you're now bringing in legislation that is affecting the minority. And it took nearly 80 years to reverse that decision. But we had people like WB Yeats who was talking yeah. about those minority issues and raising them and sometimes failing. But, you know, it's it's the, the, the platform of the Shannon has been used successfully time and time again by Michael D. Higgins and others to raise those issues that society didn't want to hear about. And often you wouldn't be able to get elected in the Dáil if you were standing on those issues. Can I ask you, you were a uh, uh, senator since, since 2007 and elected subsequently. You now occupy the grand position of Cahirlach, um for the past year or so. Two nearly. Two nearly. Yeah, but who's counting? So <laughs> what's it been like? The power coursing through your veins. <laughs> it's a learning you Impose your will. I'll tell you what it's like. It's on like, like, a, it's like a, an early learning curve. It's a steep learning curve uh, because you have to, it's like being the referee, but also what you're what you're trying to do is learn all the rules. You always said respect for referees as well. That, that's thanks very, uh, a man who knows a lot about South Kerry football, uh, Michal and, uh, and, the, and the rule of law when it comes to GA matches in Kerry. But what you're actually uh, trying to do, what I did was look at all those reports that had been written, the 14 reports on channel reform and say, okay, what can we do? That's within our gift that we can implement and bring about those changes and then talk to government about bringing about changes in other areas that are not within our power, our sole power. So that's the one in relation to reform the electoral system. We've got by-election going on at the moment. Hopefully it might be the last by-election held under under this current uh, regime. But it's about making those changes that make the Shannon relevant for the next 100 years. And, and we're going to have a debate on that at the tail end of this year. Like we're doing exhibits in relation to the women of the Shannon. We're talking about the Northern Voices. Another unique aspect of the Shannon is that people uh, have been appointed to the Shannon. 
the leaders of the SDLP, Seamus Mallon and Breed Rogers were appointed the, uh, to the Shannon. Of course, uh, Gordon Wilson uh, talking in the Shannon about reconciliation, a man who lost his daughter in the in the skill and killing. Uh, killing. Well, let's get back to you then. What You're talking about the history there of it. You're saying that you went through the 14 um, various reports in Shannon reform and you now have an opportunity in the position as Carhairlick to do something about it. So one is the issue of the electoral base and how the um, Shannon is elected by general franchise or the system we currently have. What else is there? One thing you seem to be sort of scratching at was the issue of European law and the question of yeah, and directives. Got, and you've got you've got a bit of form in this calling the Shannon back in 2013, demanding, demanding the senators come back. Paddy Burkhand anyway. Well, that was one where I lost all the Christmas card lists of every People senator. call back uh, from their holidays. Was it worth it? Uh, you know, it was. And I'll tell you, it is a kind of a bit of the thing about how, how you bring about changes. First of all, it highlighted the issue that we had one of the worst organ donation systems in Europe. Bear this in mind. The first, the first and only piece. Were you and Joe Bradley on the same side on this or opposing side? Well, like as in football, we'd have to be on, on different sides on okay. this one because we were talking about there, there was this whole idea of presumed consent and, and, and required requests and all those phrases. But the real issue here was this was the first and to date the only piece of organ donor legislation in the history of the state. And it was brought in by a, a European law, which was added to by the Department of Health. No TD, no senator or no health committee saw it before it was signed into Irish law by a minister. So it started at 16 pages when it came from Europe. By the time the Department of Health had finished with it, it was nearly 46 pages and nobody in the Iraq just saw it before it was signed into law. So what I did was, it was quite unpopular, re- use the procedural uh, system Mechanism, in, yeah. the, in the Senate where the standing orders allow for, for the Senate to be recalled and the signature of 20, 20, signature, 20 senators. And then we were able to bring back the Senate to debate the piece of legislation that had never been debated by either house or seen by either house until it was signed by the minister. And the night before, the minister got a phone call and uh, or made a phone call to the organ transplant office and said, I'm going to appoint more staff to your office so that he could go into the Shannon chamber and say, I've appointed more staff to the office. And that would not have happened if it hadn't been for the recall. But nine and we years on. Like daily getting everyone off the beach and all that. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, but I nine, mean, nine, nine years on, it's still the same system, which is no, by, it's improved. by ministerial, ministerial signature, directors yeah. from and European work, law come in. We're working on that and we raised it with the t-shirt. Are you going to get it over the line, Mark? This well, is the thing. You know, we want results-based business. Uh, will I, when I get it over the line, can I come back to you? Grand job, just as long as it isn't sort of like 2028 20, or something. No, like no, 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 no. I don't work on those kind of timelines. Like I work on the, like in the next in the next few months. And do you hoping. think something like that, Mihulahan? You know, if he was to get a big victory like that, that that would then set him up for sort of you know running for the Doyle Kerry constituency. Presidency. You have expressed an interest in the presidency, haven't you? No, I don't, like we have. If been, you were I've, approached, uh, well, I've been I, I've been asked, and that was a long time ago. But Michael D is doing a grand job. You have dined with the president of America, of course, when many prominent members of this government weren't able to get to that table uh, in Clare, but you did. Well, I'll tell you, know, kind of you know how that came about, right? <laughs> Can I just explain that to you? I was, uh, when I was over in Washington many moons ago, about 10 years ago, I met a guy named uh, Congressman Mick Mulvaney and we got on like a house on fire and we were chatting away and, and he had been over to Ireland a few times as a congressman and I was, when I'd go over to the US, I'd meet him and he said, you know what, um, he 
he worked on a few projects with us, including getting a, a, a tree planted on Capitol Hill to commemorate 1916 and other issues, including the undocumented. And when you introduced yourself as Senator Daly, did he think you're like upper house, so it's like the United States, so you've got loads of power? I can't, I couldn't, I couldn't account for what anybody thinks in their head when they meet me, but I just wanted to try and advance the cause of the undocumented in the United States. And Mick was very helpful. It, like he's on the Republican side of the fence, but he recognised the issue. And then he ended up uh, going from member of Congress to chief, of, well, the Office of Budget Management in the United States government, which is like huge job. Everybody has to go to you, like the chief, the director of the FBI, the Homeland Security, the chief of staff of the of the United States uh, Army. And he then ended up as the chief of staff in the White House. So when, when the president was over, I ended up at the other table. I didn't get to the main table, but I had a great night with Mick. Like, well, it kind of sums up, comes some Mark Daly's viewed as an enigma around Leinster House. <laughs> and... <laughs> I've heard other words used. <laughs> oh well, Paul. No, sorry. Can I turn the table there now, Paul? Other <laughs> words have been used. Could I? Could I let, me, let me just clarify. I feel, Paul, like with like because of the listenership and wanting to keep it like within the like the nine yeah. o'clock. Are we under the nine o'clock watershed? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Mind, so this will be bleeped out if it goes exactly. after nine o'clock. Okay. So other words would have might oh, be hard, hard working. I think hard yeah. work. Yeah. Hard working. Well, be right. But you could get to that table. You you could. Yeah. Read, you could. Paul, read. you're such. You know. Oh, you're a diplomat. Do you ever think around for a <laughs> <New> career? <laughs> but you could wield that influence, and you, and you can get yourself into these very prominent positions that a lot of people within the government can't, uh, and that some of your colleagues they don't they don't understand this. Well, like diplomacy is a contact sport, right? So if you if to make contacts and to 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 talk to people, you have to show up. So like I I would go to Washington, pay my way, uh, and and say, hey, look. I'm here t- talking about the issue of the undocumented was one of the big issues that I had worked on since I got elected because we had so many people who were affected in this like nightmare where they couldn't come home for funerals. As and you had an official role within the party at one point I was, before you went rogue. I was actually, I sought to be the first person by uh, by any political party to, to be appointed as the spokesperson for the Irish overseas in the diaspora. So Michal uh, Martin appointed me in that role. And then I wrote the first report in the history of the state by any political party on the, uh, as a policy for a political party in the Irish overseas in the diaspora, spoke about a minister for the diaspora. And subsequently that was done by uh, Taoiseach Andy Kenny. I give him great credit for doing that. But like, po- that's again, one of those policy changes you can bring about. It's not legislation. You say, here's an idea. And then other parties say, that's a good idea. We'll adopt it as our policy. And who cares as long as it gets done? Just so how come you're not within the doll then that you can bring this skill to international diplomacy? Well, now that's a good question, but like as we all know, is better than anyone coming from Carsevine. Like you know, South Kerry politics is gladiatorial in nature. So like you'd want to, yeah. We don't have enough time, Paul, to go through the nuances. Please don't. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Can I ask you just one quick question, just because I want to come back to the sort of the cross border all Ireland issue? But just before we leave the Washington thing, Can we is, do that without Eamon O'Keefe. Let's see. Um, just, you've been a regular visit to Washington. You've seen the influence that Ireland can have. What have you seen as Brexit has kicked in about UK interest in Washington, its diplomatic power and how it's engaging with the presidency? Yeah, I mean, clearly they've, they've looked at their the, what they've done and they've engaged now more in Washington. They've sent over more ministers uh, and my colleagues in Capitol Hill have said that, that they've seen more uh, UK ministers in the last year than they've seen in the last 10 and they're going every second week. So they've learned that Irish diplomacy works. Simon Coveney and other ministers uh, going over on a regular basis works because 
as I said, diplomacy is a contact sport. And the UK are now trying to get their message out in relation to Brexit, in relation to the protocol, saying that the protocol is a threat to the Good Friday Agreement, is what I'm hearing back. So, you know, they're now figuring out that uh, they, they, they're in the influence that was brought to bear on the UK was brought to bear through the United States of America in relation to the protocol, as we all know. So the British are going the Mark Daly route, go to Washington. Well, I suppose you know if they're learning, it's, it's always a good thing. Um, but like, you know, they're formidable. They used to have four or five hundred diplomats in Washington in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies and eighties because height of the Cold War, mm. troubles in Northern Ireland, and they were continually getting their message out there. Uh, and they've they've kind they've they're now doing something similar now in relation okay. to Brexit and and obviously looking for a trade agreement with the with the U.S. government. Okay, just um, bringing it back home. Um, one of the issues you have has done an awful lot of cross border stuff, and it's initiatives you try to do in the context of being Cahillac of the Shannon. I'm just looking at you sitting across the studio table, and you've got a big Irish tricolor there. Um, if you go on to the homepage of Mark Daly, um, I think there's six sentences and three of them relate to the Irish flag. So if we are talking about the possibility of a unitary state with something like the flag, which you clearly um, can I start ho- hold the, on to, is that something you'd be saying, listen, I'll put that up on the table the as well. Now, can I, right, can yeah. I start with, I'm glad you brought up that question. I'll tell you, I, I was on the Government Commemoration Committee in 2011. Uh, for and obviously the run up to 2016 and obviously one of the key symbols of the state is the Irish flag and the message over time was lost so I sat down with a Church of Ireland reverend Reverend Michael Kavanagh, and I discussed with him the idea of setting up a foundation to promote pride in and respect for the Irish flag and its meaning for peace. And we got an honorary board together that included Packy Bonner, Henry Shefflin, Neil Briggs, John Hayes of the rugby team, Congressman Joe Kennedy, and many others. And what we wanted to do was bring to the schools the idea that this flag is about peace between communities. So that a no. Well, the, well, the answer is that what we're looking at is the emblem, the symbol itself is about peace between orange and green. Now, yeah. when we when the president came to the ceremony in 2016, which we helped organize in Croke Park in the conjunction with the Taoiseach's department, he said it's now about peace between communities on this island because there's far more than two. There's all sorts of different groups and backgrounds. And we run with the Thomas Francis Marr Foundation, a program with schools in the run-up to St. Patrick's Day, where they, we, they're given free Irish flags made here in Ireland by the same company who make it for the Defence Forces to fly and to explain the true meaning of the flag. So that's why in 2016 it was very important that the army were the ones who went into the schools and gave those flags to people. And going back to now your... this is a circuitous question. I mean, you're, I, you're going for a wander around the garden here. I, uh, of well, Insta- has, just, well, let me go back to the, 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 the question you in the sentence. Would so you so what, I've learned, what, what I've learned from the unionist community in Northern Ireland and having been up there quite a number of times over the last year and a half when we were able to do so. The thing with the, the unionist community is one of their key issues is identity, right? That they're afraid that their identity will be taken from them in a new agreed Ireland, whichever way you want to do it. And it's not about taking symbols away from people. It's about accommodating identity. And that's what the Good Friday Agreement was great at doing. It's not about winners and losers. It's saying, well, about tolerance. And that's where you say, well, we're not going to take away people's symbols. We're going to accommodate people's symbols. And the IRFU do that excellently. In Lansdowne okay. Road, they have the nine-county Ulster flag, the IRFU flag, and they have the Irish flag. And they're all Everyone in there. Everyone in there. One last question, because we've got to chuck you out. Um, otherwise, we'd be unfair to other political Oh, well, we wouldn't want to be course. unfair to anybody. Um, one of the features of your uh, chairmanship in the Cahillac, or Cahillac uh, of the Shannon is that on the national days of European nations, you like to say a couple of words in their uh, language 
and you often call in the ambassador something which has been curtailed in the context of COVID. But some were suggesting that this was this trying to build bridges with these countries and interparliamentary connections was something which was a bridge to travelling to those individual companies. No, I mean... I know there's terrible cynics out there, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad they're not inside in this room. But no, I'll tell you... The, the thing about that is thanking those ambassadors personally, as I did yesterday when the Lithuanian ambassador was in, for their support to Ireland for Brexit. And a lot of those countries light up their buildings green for our national day. Now, we, we don't do the same in, in terms of reversing the compliment, but it's about thanking company, countries and acknowledging their support for us during Brexit because it would have been quite easy for people in Lithuania going, what, do, what would an Irish border mean to us? And it's the smallest things that make the biggest difference. Okay. And yesterday, the president of Lithuania like remarked on the on the tweets of, that the ambassador for Lithuania put up. And that's, that's soft diplomacy. It's a contact sport. And we'll continue with it because what it does, it gets our message out that we're grateful for their support. And being grateful is never a bad thing. Just, just that's before a, you go, you have a, a mission to try and get more women on the walls of Leinster House, the art, uh, former uh, prominent figures around here. The, the walls are bedecked with portraits of men primarily. Who would you take down? What man would you take down? No, and with? again, see, it's not about winners and losers and it's about accommodating everybody. So there's plenty of wall space in Leinster House and we're open to ideas and suggestions. But one of the things that uh, I did when I became here, like, is you notice the idea of if you walk through Leinster House, it's 90% men. And some of that is just their historical facts. But that doesn't stop us trying to achieve the balance in relation to acknowledging the women who were involved in the 1916 Rising, not just the leaders of the Rising, the women who were in the Senate, uh, not just the famous uh, male senators. And like, so what we're trying to do is make sure that when school children are walking around Leinster House and they say, yeah, I could serve here too. Because if you can't see, see it, it, you, you can't, can't be it. it. And that's why we want to make sure that when people come into Leinster House and they say, okay. These are people who ma- who made huge contributions to Ireland during the last hundred years, and make sure that everybody has a part to play in the next next hundred years. Mark Daly, Cahir, look at the Shannon. Thank you very much for joining us on your politics podcast. Thanks for having me, lads. It was great. Um, Sandra, um, bringing you in here just on today's developments. The big news um, relates to masks and mask wearing. What do you know? What can you tell us? Yes, well, Neffet has been meeting today and it looks like another big move towards the the end of pretty much all the legal restrictions where mandatory mask wearing is going to end. So that means no masks, uh, people won't be compelled to wear masks in schools, in public transport, taxis, retail, uh, public offices. So this is a big move and it seems to be uh, part of the unwinding was the phrase that uh, Eamon Ryan used at Leaders' Questions today. Uh, Certainly, uh, it has been tricky in the sense that many of the unions have come out and voiced serious concerns around this, about their workers being exposed to COVID. Uh, The Bus and Rail Workers Union asked for the masks not to be done away with until perhaps well into March, until the cold season was over. But it it looks like this is the time. Uh, I thought it was interesting today, Professor Paul Moyna said on the News at One that the immunity that we have now in the population is essentially as good as we're going to get. So, um, Neffet making this move, and politically it had been expected. 
Yeah, we, you mentioned that issue of some concern. Um, I think it was the Labour leader, Alan Kelly, who raised it at Leaders' Questions, saying that it wasn't just the, the NBRU, it was also Congress, um, was just saying that from workers, who, um, whether they are in retail or whether they're in the actual uh, public transport, driving the buses or driving the darts, that this was something which was a, a problem. And I'm just wondering, I know it's a difficult question, but just how widely expressed do you think that view is? Uh, amongst the unions, I, I I think we've heard it from several of the unions. Uh, you mentioned there in an overarching way, we've heard it from ICTU. Uh, we've heard it from the Bus and Rail Workers Union. We've heard it from the teachers unions. Uh, but I think it's interesting that politically that we don't get any sense that there's a pushback uh, from within the political system. The government uh, and most of the main political parties, I think, are, are on board with this move to end the mandatory wearing of masks. Yes, Labour's Alan Kelly voiced his, his concerns and uh, he mentioned some of the issues that the unions had, but uh, I think certainly we are moving on to another phase and we may even be seeing the end of NEFET in its current form. That seems to be indicated today. The government has already mentioned this uh, National Public Health Advisory body, a sort of broader, bigger body, which will work in the background for the future. So we may not have this choreography either of the big NEFET meeting and the letter and the leaks and then the vacuum until there's a decision made. So I think that, that also marks the end uh, of the, this uh, part of the pandemic. Mihulahan, it's over. Yeah, I suppose the big political stuff is over. There was a feeling last night that this could be the last big Neffet letter and it seems to be uh, that way. So there's very little left now. Just it looks like the health settings, masks and health settings to continue. Uh, but apart, And I suppose some outstanding work around the testing requirements that they're going to be scaled back as well, as well as the vaccination operation. Although more to come from NIAC on that, the Taoiseach indicating last night that there would be an annual vaccine for people. Yeah, I mean, this issue that Michal Martin was talking about is just because um, it is no longer mandatory, it can be advisory. And he was advising people, whether they were in um, retail or on public transport, to continue to wear the mask. And I presume that um, also applies in schools. That's interesting, Chris, because schools was never underpinned legally at all. So it always was just advice, advice, albeit with uh, the support of the Department of Education for schools if they were struggling to rigorously implement that advice. So it does seem, I suppose, people can wear a mask in school, but the school bit of it looks to be a more general lifting than we'll say elsewhere. Elsewhere, perhaps there will be advice still to try and wear it on public transport and in shops in particular. But I think what seems to pose the difficulty for, for people on public transport and in shops and the like is that If that is the advice and if that is the feeling that that's the best thing to do from a health perspective, there's no way of implementing that. Uh, And if you were, if someone at the coalface was to try and do it, uh, it would be quite divisive. Um, Sandra, what's your sense of it? We had spoken on your politics podcast a lot about how at some point it was likely that the question of COVID was going to be dealt with in the same way as the flu, that there might be a vaccine one one year, possibly approaching the the, um, season, the winter, um, spring season as being, you know, that would be it. And I I feel that's the way we're going. Yes, I think that's right. Um, Certainly COVID uh, as the big risk is moving, uh, receding into the background. I do think that when we hear from government on this, there's going to be an emphasis on vaccinations and people continuing to get their boosters next month. A lot of people, I think it's 800,000, are due to get their boosters. There's 
concern that primary school children um, haven't turned up in large numbers so far to get their vaccinations. I think it's only 28% are fully vaccinated. But certainly, yes, COVID for now, and we hope that this will continue, that this pandemic that has dominated our lives and has intervened in such an unprecedented way in how we live our lives, that that is moving to the background. And I think everybody will be glad of that. And Michal, it's been a a sort of a a quieter week um, here at Leinster House. We've had some big issues Take, for example, the Defence Forces report or today in the Doyle, um, once again, statements on the big retrofitting plan. Um, But yet at the same time, an awful lot of stuff which has been discussed, including cost of living, all of these issues have been well ventilated over the past number of weeks anyway. Yeah, they have. You can see the pressure point beginning to build on health in relation to more traditional problems, uh, but no less intense and difficult and challenging for that, uh, particularly around waiting lists, whether it's the more medium term waiting lists or the short term thing ones like people having to wait uh, more than 24 hours for a bed, about a thousand people uh, during the month of January. That is people aged 75 or over in documents released to the Sinn Féin spokesperson, David Conlan. You can see uh, that this will build on government and what is different this time compared to other points in the past is that governments say it's not an issue of funding, but the difficulties uh, and the problems remain. So it's just going to be interesting to see how the opposition go on that uh, and manage to keep this uh, centre stage when it isn't apparently a funding issue and at the moment at least. One thing which um, the opposition and in particular Sinn Féin are doing is using a tactic of portraying the, the government as out of touch. Um, somebody like Pierre Starty, Sinn Féin's finance spokesperson, is repeatedly saying and indeed pointing as a finger across at the government bench saying, you don't get it, you don't get it. To what extent is that resonating with, say, renters who are finding things very difficult? Uh, and how can a government respond and reply to that? See, I don't know that they can. I mean, TDs and government TDs will always say they they do get it because they do have constituencies and they have constituency clinics. At the same time, government is looking longer term to try and deal with this. Yes, they were the targeted measures, as they would say, the opposition said they weren't targeted around the cost of living. But the next intervention, it seems, won't happen until the budget. So in the meantime, the pressure will build on government all the time. And when you look to housing and even to things like health, uh, it's about developing more capacity and it's about dealing with things like nursing homes and building up capacity there as well. The short term uh, ability of government to deal with the crisis, whether it's housing or whether it's health, whether it's cost of living, I don't think they have any immediate answers on that front. Uh, would you concur with that, Sandra, that basically from whether it's Stephen Donnelly in health or whether it's Dara O'Brien in housing, they just have to take the hits and hope that within two years, whatever policy they've introduced, um, that will be recognised by the voters come general election time? I think what's interesting is that over the last couple of weeks, we've certainly seen a fight back from senior members of government against that sort of that that uh, line of questioning from Sinn Féin. Uh, We've heard the Taoiseach and the Taunshtha saying, you know, you don't have a monopoly on compassion. We do care. We, We care very deeply about people who are finding it difficult to make ends meet. Whether that resonates with voters, I'm not so sure. Yes, I would agree that when it comes to housing and waiting lists, the government are essentially uh, waiting for that big lift in numbers and the supply of housing coming on and things getting better in health. It's not going to happen in the near future. Hopefully it will happen within the term of government. And that really is their sort of longer term electoral strategy that all those moves in housing, that they will pay a dividend and that people will notice the difference by the time they go to the polls again. Finally, Sandra, just picking up on the question of looking forward. um, Today, Micheál Martin is in Brussels for an EU-Africa summit while also having informal discussions on what's happening in Russia-Ukraine. 
Ukraine. Next week he's going to be in Berlin, so the Taoiseach is on the move. But back here at Leinster House, is there anything um, specifically that's coming on the horizon which we need to look out for? Well, you've put me on the spot there, Paul. What what exciting <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, political uh, uh, what exciting political stories can we expect on the schedule next week? As you mentioned, uh, the Taoiseach is going to the the Reichstag in Berlin. Uh, I think there's been a lot of travel recently from uh, Leah Radker, of course, has been abroad recently yeah, also, and Stephen Donnelly. So, yes, they are they're all spreading their wings at the moment, uh, and that's before you get to St. Patrick's Day. You, you could probably take an each-way bet that cost of living will be discussed at some point in either houses of the Oireachtas, if not both. Yeah, I think the big, uh, you know, the fault line for the government in the the cost of living package last week, as the opposition would see it, is that of the 500 million, three quarters of that was not targeted. It was that universal energy credit. And I think that is a point that the opposition are going to continue to press. They want more targeted measures. And Sinn Féin is continuing to push for this uh, carbon tax rise due in May for that to be reversed. Sandra Hurley of our political staff, thank you very much for joining us. Also, Han, political correspondent and our political guest as well today, the Cahirlach of the Shannon, Mark Daly. That's all we have for you on your politics podcast from RT News. Please do subscribe to our podcast. Please do leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. But until next week, take care. Thank you.